back in the day, 50, 60 years ago, American history was the history of elites. History today is being written from the bottom up. In other words, telling the story of people who were not successful, who had great difficulties economically and socially in America. And to some extent, the Jewish story is left out because, thank goodness, we did quite well in America. Hi, I'm Stu Halpern, Senior Advisor to the Provost here at Yeshiva University. And I'm here with Dr. Jeffrey Gurak. Dr. Gurak is Libby M. Clapperman, Professor of Jewish History here at Yeshiva prize-winning author or editor of 20 books in the field of American Jewish history. He was twice chair of the Academic Council of the American Jewish Historical Society, and for 20 years served as an editor of its journal, American Jewish History. Today we're here to talk about his new edited book, Conversations with Colleagues on Becoming an American Jewish Historian. Dr. Gurak, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak to our own community, to our yeshiva community, through your aegis, through this podcast. What inspired you to undertake uh, putting together this edited collection? Well, besides being a writer and a teacher of American Jewish history, I also have seen myself over the last 40 years as an advocate for the field. I became aware a few years ago of the fact that a number of sub-disciplines in the field of American history had begun to uh, solicit memoir books of people, uh, how they entered the field, some of the challenges they faced in developing the field, and some of the expectations they have for the future of the field. So there's a book on American ethnic history, and there's a book on American women's history. So I thought, well, maybe we should do this for American Jewish history as well. So that was one of the conceits which led me to do the book. But there are several other things. Uh, people like myself are a second generation of professional historians, and we stand on the shoulders of a group of uh, trailblazers who in the 40s and the 50s began the serious study of American Jewish history. And in a way, I wanted to pay, pay tribute to these people who are our forefathers and one foremother in that regard, Naomi W. Cohen, who's my teacher of American Jewish history at Columbia University. But also you should know that um, the first places where American Jewish history was taught on an academic level, on a collegiate university level, were three schools which have much in common. They're called Hebrew Union College, the Jewish Theological Seminary, and Yeshiva University. So notwithstanding the fact that ideologically all three schools are very, very different, after the Shoah, there was a recognition on the part of people of those schools that the rabbis that are being trained in America with the transference of leadership because of the Shoah to America, they had better know their history. So there were a number of very important pioneers. There was uh, at the uh, Jewish Logical Seminary, you had Moshe Davis, you had Jacob Rader Marcus at Hebrew Union College, and perhaps some of your listeners will remember my predecessor at Yeshiva, Hyman B. Grinstein, who taught American Jewish history here at Yeshiva, and who wrote a book, The Rise of the Jewish Community from New York, 1654 to 1860, which is still a very valuable work today. And in fact, I always say, since one of my interests, one of my great interests is a study of New York Jewish history, in every bibliography, uh, the alphabet has Grinstein and then Gurak. So I've been at Yeshiva now 40 years, almost as long as Professor Grinstein was here at Yeshiva and taught uh, as well. In any event, and the other great father of the, inst of the institution of American Jewish history was Salem W. Barone to Columbia. So these are the people who developed the field, and they, you know, they changed the field away from its early history of being a type of field where it was written for apologetic, defensive reasons, ancestor worship, and the like, 
and we start to professionalize the field uh, as well through that sort of thing. So one of the things I want to do through this, through enlisting uh, usual suspects, 15 of the leading senior scholars in American Jewish history, is to give students and readers uh, a sense of how far we've come as a field in terms of our professionalization, in terms of the types of things which interest us. And as you know, because I was very pleased that you read through the book, that we have 15 or 16 different visions of what interests them in terms of American Jewish history. So who should be interested in this book? Certainly there are people who are uh, insiders who very much like American Jewish history, but I suggest that if you're interested at all in the evolution of the humanities, of the Jewish humanities, and some of the challenges that we face and have overcome as American Jewish historians, this is a nice place, uh, a nice place to start. And people were very cooperative, in fact, anxious to, um, to tell their stories. So that, that got me involved in doing this work. And there was one other issue that I should raise at this point. Maybe we'll discuss it further. There are a lot of young people out there who are doing marvelous work in American Jewish history who face challenges in terms of employment, in terms of professionalization. And two years ago, at our American Jewish Historical Society biannual conference, we had a session on how I wrote my first book. And I invited a number of the contributors to this book to speak about how they got involved in studying American Jewish history. And during the question and answer session, uh, people said, you know, you wrote your books and you got tenure and you've been at Yeshiva or Michigan or HUC or JTS all these years, you know, what about us? And it's a very difficult time out there for scholars, for younger scholars. And I wanted them to know that number one, we're aware of their difficulties. And number two, number two, that there were challenges that we had to overcome and continue to deal with as uh, students of, uh, of American Jewish history. One last preliminary note, you know, when you do, um, I'm privileged to teach at the Revel Graduate School, and I often kibitz with my uh, colleagues who teach biblical studies or medieval studies that uh, no one ever gets up in the audience after you give a talk and say, I heard what, what Rashi said, and what Rashi said was different from what you're saying today. When you do American Jewish history, you're doing contemporary stuff. You have to be very careful in what you do in terms of making a, an, an impact upon the, uh, the scholarly world. So those were the conceits which led me to do this book. So speaking of uh, the audience that you speak to uh, and that you write for, the book recounts many areas of focus uh, well documented by the scholarly contributors, including your own work on Jewish Harlem and Jews in sports, as well as others, uh, Jewish women's history, including the fantastically titled You Never Call, You Never Write, The History of the Jewish Mother by Joyce Antler, as well as Diane Ashton's Hanukkah in America, Jonathan Sarna's Lincoln and the Jews. Many of these works have become quite popular beyond the Jewish community, and some have produced their own museum exhibits. In your experience, should American Jewish historians focus on producing works for their own Jewish community or for the wider public? So the operative word in everything that we do today and with our publishers is the word accessibility. That when you write your works, they should be first uh, high-level scholarship, but they should be accessible not only to uh, other scholars, but to Jews and to non-Jews in terms of telling the Jewish story without regret, without apology, without defensiveness, but make sure that our story is tell told as well. You know, I said at the outset that one of the challenges of doing uh, American Jewish history today, back in the day, 50, 60 years ago, 
American history was the history of elites, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males. That's what people wrote about. And then when we came on the, into the field for a very shining moment, we piggybacked on the efflorescence of interest in African-American history, Latino history, Italian history, and American Jewish history. And we told our story. Today, ironically, where the narrative is shifting, which is somewhat problematic for us as Jews and as scholars, is that history today is being written from the bottom up. In other words, telling the story of people who were not successful, who had great difficulties economically and socially in America. And to some extent, the Jewish story is left out because, thank goodness, we did quite well in America. So one of the things that's important in terms of being someone who's talking to American historians is to say that the Jewish narrative is worthy of telling, not as a high-level success story, but in terms of looking at the struggles that we faced as a people in terms of advancing ourselves in America. So in terms of making a digation impact upon American historians, that is one of the things that has to be done and has to be concerned about. So we write for our own people, and we write for a larger narrative, and most importantly, we write uh, prose that we think uh, are accessible to the uh, to the general public. You know, I look I look at my stuff over the course of, of forty years, and I think that, you know, uh, a few years ago I rewrote a book that I wrote forty years ago. So I wrote when Harlem was Jewish, which was my doctoral dissertation. And one of the things I do or don't do after I write a book is I never look at it again because I don't want to find typographical errors and things of that sort, be that as it may. I decided to rewrite the Harlem book, and I realized that, you know, I matured over the course of those 40 years. I also age over the course of those 40 years, and um, I want to make the book more accessible to a larger public. And it's been received quite well, not only by Jewish historians and American Jewish historians, but American historians and African-American historians. In fact, there's a fellow out there in Harlem, John Reddick, African-American, who's doing a book now on Jewish-Black interaction in the world of music. Hmm. And it was based upon him becoming a friend of mine, hearing me talk about Harlem and saying, well, you know, the Jewish-Black story can be told in terms of social relationships, economic relationships, but also in terms of the music that was produced by African Americans. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, Jews were involved in that, Al Jolson, the Gershwins, etc. cetera. Uh, and that relationship needs studying. So he's picked up on my stuff and is writing as an African American historian. So I think that's a very nice mixture of influences. But above all, the starting point and the finishing point is it's got to be accessible. We have to write for people, not only scholars, but for people uh, what we call the lay audience, a general readership who will be intrigued by that sort of thing. And besides the what sounds like a fascinating upcoming work that you mentioned, what else, what other insider information can you give our listeners in terms of works you know about that are going to be published soon that you think are going to make an impact on the American Jewish historical scene and readership? Well, you know, uh, every year when I start my basic course at Revel, I hand out a syllabus. And I regret the fact that I do not have the syllabi that I had 40 years ago. But I do tell the students that very few books that are on the reading list today we're back then on the reading list. This is a dynamic field. It's a field that's evolved over the course of time. To give you an example, 
one of the areas that was plowed more than anything else was the area of colonial Jewish history. We thought, well, first of all, going back in the day, that was a type of amateurish history that was written to show that we were here at the time of the Mayflowers. And my joke is the Jewish perspective on the Mayflower was that if you think your ancestors came here on Plymouth Rock, that's okay. But there was a Jew waiting for you to welcome you to America. And that was part of the whole dynamic of proving that Jews were Americans and were here for the longest time. Due to the work of Professor Marcus and others, this was the first field that was professionalized. And I thought a while back that we did as much as could possibly be done in the colonial field. Lo and behold, people are now rewriting portions of that sort of history. There's a woman a scholar at Brown University, she happens to be a librarian named Holly Snyder, who's done work on, at what point can we talk about community? The way we used to teach it was in terms of the first few synagogues that were established, but a lot of American Jews were not synagogued. A lot of American Jews were not members of synagogue. At least half of the population were not members of the synagogue because they were women. They didn't enter synagogue life officially to the longest time. And I'm not talking about aliyot or, or being presidents of shul. I'm talking about membership in the synagogue. So we're rethinking those types of things. There's a woman named Laura Liebman who's looking at the impact of Jewish mysticism, of all things, upon American Jewish life. So we're constantly rethinking that sort of activity. I'm proud to say that one of my former students, um, who got a PhD at Brandeis University, Zev Elif, is doing some very important work on the history of American orthodoxy. You know, it's been said to some extent, probably overstated hyperbole, that I did a lot of work in that area. Well, I plowed that field a little bit. He's adding additional water and seeds and doing very important work in terms of, first of all, understanding 19th century American Judaism, not just American orthodoxy, and other, and other types of things. And I can go on and on. A third person teaches at Arizona State University, Gil Ryback. He's an Israeli who lives in America, is rethinking the history of American anti-Semitism on the Lower East Side. So there's a lot of interesting things being done by younger scholars who are standing to some extent on the shoulders of us, like we stand under the shoulders of these peoples, people who preceded us, and men and women doing this work Back in the day, you know, I mentioned at the outset that um, you had uh, Moshe Davis and Jada Ritter Marcus and Professor Grinstein. Uh, there was also Naomi W. Cohen, who was the first woman scholar, and in her day, she was the one and only. The only other person who dabbled in American Jewish history at that point was Lucy Davidowitz, whose main field was, was, was Holocaust studies. So she had issues in terms of being an American Jewish historian and also being a woman, uh, gaining acceptance uh, in the field. So uh, she's part of that story as well. And you mentioned uh, the American uh, anti-Semitism and the history of it. Do you see your role as a historian as informing or opining on current events, accusations of or examples of anti-Semitism in contemporary America? Do historians have a role to play in the public sphere in terms of bringing to bear their knowledge? in the way we think about today's pressing issues? Well, first of all, uh, American anti-Semitism is an issue that should be addressed by the Jewish community, um, and it's addressed well by various defense organizations. Uh, what we can do as historians is provide 
background and interesting perspective. And I'll just share one perspective that I have that I've been talking about recently. So we're speaking now in the summer of 2018. It is an era where there's the reemergence of the alt, of, excuse me, the emergence of the alt-right, which to some extent is the reemergence of forms of virulent anti-Semitism. But you have to have some perspective on it. Uh, a lot of people don't know that one of my favorite places in New York, it was called Madison Square Garden, the old garden on 49th Street and 8th Avenue. 1939, Washington's birthday, was a day where the German-American Bund had a rally with gigantic flags, American flags, and pictures of George Washington and Adolf Hitler. You have a German-American Bund, you have the silver shirts, you have virulent forms of anti-Semitism. So what I'm saying here is that uh, American Jewish defense organizations, and Jews in general, should be vigilant and understand what the problem is and, and fight back against anti-Semitism. But you also have some perspective on how far we've come in terms of a community. Uh, you know, I, in this book, there's all sorts of autobiographical stuff which I asked people to write about. So it, I, I wrote about my family and, my, and growing up in my neighborhood and things of that sort. So one of the things I didn't write about, but I'll tell you in terms of anti-Semitism, that in 1942, before my father was scheduled to go into the American Navy, um, he and my mother went on a last vacation to New Hampshire, the height of the off season. And they came to a hotel. I wasn't born yet. This is a family legend, you know. And the, the hotel had, had a sign, no Jews, dogs, or consumptives allowed. And since this was the height of the off-season, they, uh, they were going to let uh, Leah and ja Jacob Gurok, Jack Gurok, into the hotel, identifiable Jewish first names, and not last names. And my father gave them the equivalent of the Bronx cheer. They went someplace else. You know, uh, in my entire life, we've, I've never experienced this sort of social anti-Semitism, and you know, Part of my cachet here at uh, Yeshiva that for a while I was involved off and on with our athletic program, you know, we, we go everywhere and we're accepted. And that's one of the challenges of American Jewish life more than fighting against anti-Semitism. You know, how do you live a robust Jewish life in a country which accepts you? That's, so that's my message. Be vigilant against anti-Semitism, understand the context of anti-Semitism, respond when appropriate. Let the professionals handle that. We historians have always been very good in providing resources. Let the professionals do their thing with what we have to offer as, as professionals. talked a little bit about the past. We've talked just now about the current state of affairs, the risk of falling into the trap that one of the contributors mentions about how people often ask historians about the future. I'm going to walk right into that trap and say, what, what emerging trends do you see on the American Jewish scene? Dizzy Dean once said that if you make a prediction and you're wrong, you're a fool. If you make a prediction and you're right, well, that's just darn good predicting. So I'm reticent about making predictions. And this sort of question is never asked of my people who study bi biblical history or medieval history because the answer is already, already there. Also, when you take a story, like in my Harlem book, up to the present day, 
things are constantly changing. So you pray that nothing happens while the proofs are being edited because things are constantly evolving. But having said that, the issue of um, American Jewish survival in this country is not an, not a question, at least to my mind, um, of anti-Semitism devouring no. us. And you know, when you say this to people at a cocktail party or a kiddish, well, they'll say, well, what about Spain? What about Germany and things of that sort? To my way of thinking, we've never been freer as a diaspora community. And again, the story about my parents in the hotel uh, says a lot about the way it was for second-generation Jews as opposed to third, fourth, and in my case, I'm, I have grandchildren who are fifth-generation American Jews. The issue for American Jews is, are we gonna survive as a community uh, under a condition of, of great freedom? And my perspective is, a sociologist once said about American Jewish identity about 20, 30 years ago, that it's the more, the more, the less, the less. In other words, the people across the denominational spectrum and within the denominational spectrum who are concerned with the maintenance of Jewish life, they're doing more and more and more. And the others are doing less and less and less. And sadly, there are more of the lessers than the morers in the community. And our job as educators and as Jewish leaders, and I don't consider myself an, a leader, I consider myself an educator, is to increase the number of the morers at the expense of the lessers. So looking ahead, I think we'll have a very robust core of people who are deeply committed to Jewish life. The question is how extensive it will be as we move through this rapidly moving 21st century. I can't believe it. Almost two decades have gone gone by and we're still here and we're dealing with those, those sorts of issues. So again, I think people were a little bit traumatized by Charlottesville and some other manifestations of anti-Semitism. You know, the ADL uh, came out with a report that said that anti-Semitism, the number of incidents were higher this year uh, in comparison to 1979. Well, that's not 1942. So we're living through a very dicey era, but the, the greater issue for us as Jews is how do we maintain our identity in a largely accepting society? That's our challenge. Now, final question. What's next up for you after this work? Do you have anything else that you're working on currently? I'm always working, and uh, I, you know, one, of the, one of the nice things about teaching at Yeshiva, I should say, is that uh, many colleagues of mine who teach Jewish studies around the country they teach all sorts of subjects which may not be in, when I say, in their wheelhouse. Uh, at Yeshiva for 40 years, replacing Professor Grinstein, I've been allowed to teach American Jewish history almost exclusively. So all my work is in American Jewish history. Now, after 41 years at Yeshiva, I'm writing a book where Jews, American, Jewish, American history, American Jewish history, where Jews are not central. It is a story, interestingly enough, of the neighborhood that I grew up in in the East Bronx, which was Italian, Irish, and Jewish, blue-collar, low-middle-class neighborhood, uh, people who couldn't afford or didn't want to move to suburbia, totally white neighborhood. A lot of people don't realize how segregated New York City was for the longest time. It's not until 1969, by which time I've grown up. I lived there from 1948 to 1967, 68. Uh, no African-Americans, no Latinos in the neighborhood. Uh, today, 
it's called Parkchester in the East Bronx. It's a sister community to um, Stuyvesant Town in Manhattan. Today, the neighborhood is largely Bangladeshi, Malaysian, some people in the form, former Soviet Union. But if you go back to the neighborhood, and I've taken my grandchildren back to the neighborhood, the neighborhood looks the same. One of the images we have of neighborhoods declining physically, it's still a beautiful place. And it's gone from being a segregated, white, working-class neighborhood to a multicultural neighborhood. And I've made some very, very good friendships with some of the uh, Bangladeshis. In fact, the shul that I davened in, I grew up in, and some other faculty members of yeshiva grew up, the Young Israel of Parkchester, is now the Parkchester Islamic Center. It's a mosque. And um, I've made friends with them, as I have with people in the other five mosques in the neighborhood. Um, so it's a story of a neighborhood transformation in which the Jewish story is important, but it's not the only story. It's a neighborhood where Irish and Jews got along pretty well. You know, my friend Gil Ryback writes about the fact. Uh, maybe, maybe many of your listeners know about the infamous or famous uh, riot that took place in 1902 at the funeral of Rabbi Jacob Joseph, the first and only chief rabbi of New York City, where the Irish and the Jews fight in the streets. Then you have in the 30s, you have Father Coughlin and the Christian Front, and we're sitting in Washington Heights. Washington Heights was a battleground between Jews and Irish. But in Parkchester, Jews and Irish got along. Why did they get along? Well, my thesis is that it, this was a new neighborhood built in 1940. Both groups are moving into the neighborhood at the same time. And uh, the Jewish men, most of the Jewish men, Jewish and the Irish men, working at the same sorts of jobs. There was this sort of leaven. Hamates for tension was much less. And although we didn't have great friendships, we got along. So there is a uh, Irish-American historian who wrote a memoir of his life in Parkchester, and he said, we lived separately together, which I think says a lot about the nature of urban experience. And today it's an it's a Islamic neighborhood. Uh, if I can tell you one quick story, last year I took my grandchildren to uh, the neighborhood to a children's concert in Metropolitan Oval, which is a beautiful oval in the middle of Parkchester. And as kids who are having their faces painted, and I'm online with them, and there's a Latino woman, she's 38 years old, and I, I'm dialoguing her. I said, well, how do you like the neighborhood? Remember, her grandmother couldn't get into Parkchester, and her mother got into Parkchester. She says, it used to be a great neighborhood, but now we have all these darn Bangladeshis here, and they have so many children, and they, they eat strange foods, and there's strange smells in the neighborhood. So even they have to understand the nature of multiculturalism, even though, you know, Parkchester professes correctly that all groups, all groups are allowed in. So it will be uh, it will be published by NYU Press, which is one of my publishers, and they're very intrigued because this is a this is a Jewish historian who does American Jewish history, going back to my roots because I was trained at Columbia as both a Jewish historian an American historian, uh, and I'm also writing about my, my neighborhood. So it, it's been a lot of fun. I also showed my kid, my, my grandchildren, the apartment building I grew up in. I had to explain to them that I didn't even own the building. We had one little apartment in that building. But, you know, our, our young Israel of Parkchester, and I, you know what? I have to say this also. Of all the things I've not yeshiva, one of the things I'm most proud of, strangely enough, maybe not so strange, 
is that when before the shore closed, we saved all the records of the shore. I got three fellows from Yeshiva College, three strong fellows. We rented a U-Haul van. We went to the shore. I said, okay, guys, take everything out of the shore. And we saved all the records. And they're now safe in our archive in, in forever. And uh, not knowing that 15 years later, I'd use them in the book. So one of the things that I looked at in studying Youngsville Park, Chester, is at what point does the Rabbi, Rabbi Schwartz, start asking people, we need three men for a minion. And it starts with a little request, and ultimately he pleads for men to come to the minyan. As the Jewish population is not driven out of Park Jester, we just aged out of Park. My, fam my parents' generation aged out of Park Jester, and uh, we became rich, and we moved out of Park Jester and moved into a, a nicer neighborhood called Riverdale. And in fact, the synagogue I belonged to in Riverdale in many respects, is a successor synagogue to Youngsville Parkchester because like all immigrants, we moved into a new neighbor. We wanted to daven with people we grew up with. Mm. We found that shul and we've been there ever since. So it's been a lot of fun, you know, retracing my roots and uh, everyone I've met uh, in Parkchester has been extraordinarily helpful. So there's even a Red Saracek piece in the book in a strange way. I become friendly with a senior Monsignor, uh, Thomas Derivan, who was at St. Helena's Church for many years. And I interviewed him and he said, I'd like to set up a focus group with some of our senior parishioners. I said, great. So I came to his rectory and there are a whole bunch of older people. As I walk in, one of the older gentlemen says, Professor Gorak, do you know the C play in basketball? I said, of course, that Sarachek's signature play. How in the world do you know that? He says, well, when I was a kid in the 50s, playing for St. Helena's basketball team, Red Sarachek, who owned a sporting goods store, used to come down, sell us sneakers and uniforms and jock straps, and in return, he would teach the C play to us. I said, Mr. Caroland, not only do I know the C play, and I've coached the C play, because he knew, having Googled me, that I had some basketball background, but I have a son who's a coach, and he runs a C play. So the Shalshot HaKabbalah, the continuing impact of Sarachek lives on even in the Catholic schools. And in fact, before we had a gym at Yeshiva, where'd we play? We played in Catholic schools. Why? Because Sarachek had, had this connection. And then I interviewed another uh, an older Jewish gentleman who played, who claimed he was so good as a basketball player that he played for the Shamrocks, which was an Irish-American basketball team that was sponsored by St. Helena's uh, Church. And um, one day he was playing, he was sitting on the bench, and Monsignor Scanlon, who was a very famous Monsignor within the Catholic Church, came over to him and said, young man, I haven't seen you at Mass lately. Well, he was a Jewish guy playing for the Catholic school. So that was part of, part of the lore, L-O-R-E, of Parkchester. That's, again, accessible, telling an important story, but telling it in a way that will intrigue not only scholars, but ho hopefully a vast reading audience. Who knows? And as an appendix for the uninitiated, those not well-versed in why you lark, can you tell us who Red Sarachek was and his continuing significance for Yeshiva? Sure. So Red Sarachek was the longtime coach of coaches at Yeshiva. He came to us initially in 1941, and he built the basketball program at Yeshiva. And for the last 
30, almost 30 years now, we've had a Red Saracic basketball tournament in, in honor and now in memory of, uh, of Saracic, which brings in uh, Jewish athletes from all over, the, all over the country. And I became friend. I didn't play for Saracic. I played for, I played for, a, for a player who played for Saracic. His name was Marvin Hershkowitz, who was our first great basketball player. And um, I became friendly with Saracic late in his life. And when I wrote my sports book, there's a picture of Sarachek on the uh, on the cover. And when he passed away, I was asked to write an obituary, which I did for the Jewish Week, which for a number of years was in the brochure, which was handed out at the at the tournament. And he he had sent me Hanukkah cards, and his message was, "Keep Judaism alive." Now he wasn't a particularly observant Jew, but think about that in terms of what I said about Jewish survival. Keep Judaism alive. And that's one of the messages of Sarachek, which has continued to this day. So we're very proud of our sports program. You know, at one point we had three of the most, four of the most renowned coaches in the country. Coach Sarachek for basketball, Arthur Tauber, who was an Olympian for fencing, Henry Wittenberg, who was a Olympic gold medalist, and Eli Epstein, who was the tennis pro at uh, at Grossinger's of blessed memory. And Wittenberg was in what sport? Oh, he was a wrestler. He was a wrestler. A 56-inch chest, a gigantic <laughs> man, and a, and, a, and a really very good coach. So uh, that's part of our pedigree uh, as well, which I wrote about in my sports book sure. called Judaism's Encounter with American Sports, uh, which uh, was not only you know, a scholarly work, but also an intriguing story about yeshiva and other and other sports. Uh, I talk about um, a great line, probably the most classic rabbi's line about sports, uh, Solomon Schechter, who is the founder of the conservative movement, 20th century conservative movement in America, is walking one day with his prized student, Louis Finkelstein, and it's during the World Series. And he walked past a, a newspaper stand, and there, there are headlines about, about the World Series. And he turns to Finkelstein, who wasn't a jock, and he says, uh, do you know about, bas- about baseball? Yesh Omrim, did you play baseball? It makes no difference. And Finkelstein said, no. And Schechter said, unless you know about baseball, you'll never be an effective rabbi in America. <laughs> and there's some truth to that. You know, a rabbi who can, who can teach Torah but engage his audience, again, accessibility, whether it's through sports or music or theater or art, will grab the audience's attention and then maybe they'll listen to the Torah message. So that was Solomon Schechter's vort, and it, made it make, makes a lot of sense to this very day. Dr. Gurak, thank you so much for all you have taught us today, and may you continue to teach so many for many more years to come. Thank you, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Stu. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scroll Up, a Yeshiva University podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Anchor, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Stu Halpern and David Chabinski and edited by David Chabinski. Until next time.